0: Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Let's be seated. This past spring, thousands and thousands of people flocked to the deserts of Southern California and Arizona. They went there to see a super bloom. A super bloom occurs usually once every 10 years or so, and it's when the usually barren landscape of the desert is transformed into this explosion of wildflowers. The combination of temperature and wind and rain has to be just right for this to happen. And instead of the normal sand and brown dirt and scraggly brush covering the landscape, A super bloom carpets the desert with thousands upon thousands of bright wildflowers all blooming at the same time. There are bursts of yellow, orange, red, even purple. There's this lush green undergrowth. It almost looks like buckets of paint have been dumped on the hillside. There are so many flowers in a super bloom that you can see these huge swaths of color Not just from a plane, but from space. It's true. The pictures from this year's Super Bloom are stunning. They'd be stunning anywhere. They'd be stunning in the middle of Midwestern cornfields or the wetlands of Florida. But these flowers aren't in the Midwest or Florida. They're in the desert where wildflowers do not belong. Because deserts are all about scarcity. Scarcity of rain or snow, of rivers or springs, shade, vegetation, life, animal or human. It's not that these things are entirely absent from the desert, but they're present in such small quantities because the environment is so hostile. Almost every resource needed to sustain life is in scarce supply in a desert. And the plants and animals that can eke out a living in the desert are scraggly and few in number. It may not be unusual to find a wildflower or two beating the odds, forcing its way through dry earth, but vast expanses of wildflowers that stretch for miles, those don't belong in the desert. By all accounts of regular life in the desert, the flowers of the super bloom shouldn't be there. And they are all the more extraordinary because of it. Now, I doubt that the prophet Isaiah knew about super blooms in the American desert, but he wasn't too far off of that in the vision that he describes in our passage today. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and bloom like, blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Isaiah's vision is a vision of joy and life out of place where it doesn't belong. It's life out of place, not just because it describes flowers in the desert, though. It's life out of place because of where this entire passage sits in the book of Isaiah. The 10 verses that we read this morning, that's all of chapter 35. Before that, chapter 34 is about God's judgment on the nations, And it is full of these images of desolation and waste, of soil turned into burning sulfur, the lands taken over by thorns. Chapter 34. Chapter 36 describes Assyria's invasion of Judah and their attempt to conquer Jerusalem. These are grim passages that have the feeling of wilderness. But right there in the middle of it, is this beautiful vision from Isaiah. So one minute he's describing war and destruction, this fruitful place laid waste, life destroyed, land decimated, and the next minute the desert blooms. Crocuses spring up, bodies are healed, spirits are restored. The parched land flows with living water. There are pools and streams, even wetlands. There is joy and life and hope in abundance, and it is all out of place. But that is what makes Isaiah's vision so powerful, the fact that it comes right in the middle of desolation. There is nothing in the situation that Isaiah is speaking into as a prophet that would support this vision of life breaking out in the wilderness. He's speaking in the midst of destruction, coming to the unrighteous, of the threat of war and exile. Those are the realities that Isaiah and his people are facing, and they are grim. And they are also, I would imagine, familiar Not that we have an ancient Middle Eastern empire breathing down our necks, but we know what life in the desert feels like. We know what it is like to be surrounded by emptiness and barrenness and to long for just the least hint of life. We're familiar with the desert of unemployment where there's a drought not just of finances but of purpose and identity. We're acquainted with the desert of passing time and the changes that we're confronted with as our bodies age. We have walked through the desert of mental illness, where depression and anxiety evaporate any joy before it can soak into our parched souls. We have lived in the desert of isolation, when we've been betrayed by loved ones or faced the hard lonely feeling of just not fitting in we know the desert of grief the scorching pain of loss and of a loved one's absence from our lives we know the desert and when we are in those deserts when we're surrounded by doubts and fears that are as numerous as the grains of sand It seems like that desert is going to go on forever. Every data point we have tells us that things are always going to be like this. That the stories of our lives are just doomed to repeat themselves over and over again. The wilderness is such a wearying place to be. We would long for joy and hope, but our souls are just too exhausted. And it's precisely into that kind of reality, that kind of wilderness, that Isaiah proclaims his vision. This is how the New Revised Standard Version puts it. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear, here is your God. Friends, this is the hope of Advent and it is the good news of Christmas that here is our God. Right here, here in the desert of despair, here in the wilderness of grief, Here in the hostile environment of dysfunctional families and the betrayal of friends. Here in all of the mess and the dysfunction of the world. Here in the dark, barren, desolate places in our lives. Here, right here in the middle of it all. Here is our God. But can we see him? Do we have eyes to perceive God's presence? Because that's the tricky part. In the midst of the wilderness, God's presence doesn't always look like what we might expect it to. It certainly didn't on the first Christmas. A helpless infant born to an unmarried girl far from home in an insignificant town occupied by an oppressive foreign power No wonder it took an angel choir's announcement if anybody was going to believe that here is your God. Nor did God's presence look the way that people expected it to through most of Jesus' earthly ministry. People constantly missed or were unsure of who Jesus was. And that's what we see happening in our gospel passage this morning. Jesus is well into his public ministry at this point. His cousin, John the Baptist, who had proclaimed his coming, John is in prison. He's been getting reports about what Jesus has been up to. And they've included some miraculous healings and other things. But they've also included Jesus calling a bunch of fishermen to be his disciples. And saying that it's the hungry and the poor and the meek and the mourning who are blessed to be in God's kingdom. This isn't exactly what John had in mind when he prophesied about Jesus as someone so great that John wasn't even worthy to tie his shoes. Not to mention, if Jesus was who John had said he was, then why had leading people to Jesus landed John in prison. And so John sends some of his followers to Jesus to ask him this question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? And Jesus responds with what most scholars think is a reference to our Isaiah passage from today. Tell John what you see, Jesus says. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is pointing John back to Isaiah, back to a vision for hope and joy and abundance in the midst of wilderness. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus is saying, here is your God. Here is our God. That's what Isaiah's prophecy promised, and it's what Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection began that our God is here. Here in the midst of wilderness, the desert, of all that is broken and painful and not as it should be, here. ...is our God. And that means that God is present in the most mundane, everyday aspects of life. Recently a friend told me a story about her friend's son, Timmy, when Timmy was in preschool. It was Christmas time, and Timmy had a favorite Christmas ornament. It was a baby Jesus ornament, and it was made out of a peanut, like a real peanut in the shell with eyes and a mouth drawn on it, and a little piece of cloth around it like a blanket. Timmy loved this ornament so much that he refused to put it on the Christmas tree, and instead he insisted on carrying his peanut Jesus around with him wherever he went, including to his school. Timmy carried his peanut Jesus around in his pocket so he would never be without his Jesus. There was a little girl in his class who always had a hard time when her parents dropped her off in the morning. and She would cry and cry. And so Timmy went over to her, holding out his peanut Jesus, and said, Would you like to hold my Jesus? I really love him, so you can't keep him, but you can hold him while you're sad. So each day, the little girl... Would hold this little peanut Jesus when she was scared and sad. And each day, Jesus, in the form of a Christmas ornament, would comfort her. And the other kids in Timmy's class began to notice what was happening. And before long, peanut Jesus was being passed around to whichever kid in the class was feeling sad and scared. Be strong and do not fear, Isaiah said. Here is your God, here in a preschooler's beloved Christmas ornament, here is your God. When I was a chaplain in a hospital, I got to know a woman who was a frequent patient on the cancer unit. I'll call her Rebecca. Rebecca was probably about 60 years old and she had brain cancer. And she knew that her disease would be terminal. And she did not shy away from that reality. She did not avoid the hard awfulness that she was going to die far too young because of this cancer. But at the same time, Rebecca was relentless in her determination to find God's blessings in the midst of her suffering. So she told me about the man that she was engaged to marry who was so faithful and present to her in her illness. And she told me about how their relationship was a blessing that redeemed the pain she had experienced in her first broken marriage. She told me about smaller things too, like her friends who would come visit her in the hospital and give her manicures. And one day she told me about one of the nurses who was caring for her. This nurse had taken a liking to Rebecca, and one day she came into Rebecca's room bearing a package of toilet paper, nice toilet paper, that she had bought at the store with her own money. The nurse told Rebecca that she knew the hospital toilet paper wasn't very good, and she just wanted Rebecca to have something better. There were tears in Rebecca's eyes as she told me about it. She said, she is a single mom trying to put her kids through college, and she spent her own money to buy me toilet paper. We laughed, and I squeezed Rebecca's hand as I said, I bet you never thought you'd see God in a package of toilet paper. (laughs) (laughs) You're right, she said, but I did. Be strong and do not fear, Isaiah said. Here is your God. Here in a gift of toilet paper from a nurse to a patient, here is your God. This is the hope of Advent. Not just that we get tastes and glimpses of God's presence here and now in the midst of the wilderness, but that one day when Jesus comes again in glory, the wilderness itself will be transformed. Where once there were only burning sands, there will be flowing springs. Where once there was only desert, there will be endless fields of flowers. Where once there was blindness and deafness and lameness, there will be beauty and music and dancing. Can you picture it? Can you imagine it? a world where once there was grinding poverty, there will be a world where resources are shared and everyone has enough. Where once there was domestic abuse, there will be homes that are filled with respect and peace and genuine love. Where once there was exclusion and prejudice, there will be communities of welcome and celebration. Where once there was death, there will be life. Because that is the God we worship. A God who is here. A God who does not leave us alone in the wilderness, but who comes to us in the midst of it and then transforms it completely. A God who was born in a manger who lived among sinners and died on a cross, who rose again, who walked out of the tomb and into the everlasting life of the kingdom of God. In Isaiah's vision, where once there was wilderness, God builds a road, the way of holiness. It is a road so wide that no one can ever wander off it. A road that brings the redeemed of the Lord home to Zion, full of gladness and joy. Friends, that is Jesus' road. And he invites us to join him on it. Even here. Even now. Even in the midst of the wilderness. For here, even here, is our God. Amen. Amen.